And today we're recording in front of a live audience at Sioux Falls Christian School in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. <laughs> Welcome to Hallway Conversations. We're a trio of educators who have plenty of questions about teaching and learning and school culture, and we believe in the value of reflection and collaboration as we seek to keep growing as teachers. This podcast is our place for thinking out loud together about issues in education and why they might matter to Christian educators. Welcome to the conversation. fifth episode of the Hallway Conversations podcast. My name is Matt Beamers. I'm Abby DeGrill. And I'm Dave Mulder. Friends, thanks to our sponsors at CASE, the Center for the Advancement of Christian Education. To learn more about the different ways that CASE can support your school board, leadership team, teachers, students, or community, we encourage you to visit their website at case.org. Also, the Dort Masters of Education program will be hosting a free webinar on March 27 at 7 o'clock Central Time with Dr. Owen Webb on restorative practices. You'll be able to register for that in the upcoming weeks, and we hope you join us. We'll put a link in the show notes when we have one. Dave and Abby, we have had the privilege of taking this podcast on the road and have done live recordings in British Columbia, Iowa, Indiana, and today we're recording in front of a live audience at Sioux Falls Christian School in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. This is a bit special for me as my wife Bev is a graduate of this school way back when it was at the OG campus on Sycamore Avenue, I believe. Um, if I got that wrong, I'm sorry, but um, I've been by that a couple of times. Did you teach at the Sycamore campus? Anybody teach at Sycamore? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for having us here today. We also want to welcome any first-time listeners. Thanks for joining us. And if you are new here, we usually begin with a check-in question, sometimes related to the topic, often not, actually. <laughs> I don't true. know if it happens in Sioux Falls, but, it, but at Dort, in our faculty workroom, there's a table. And people put some of their used treasures on that table for others to take home for free. And I'm using the word treasure very, very loosely here. This week, there was a bunch of cassette tapes and a cassette carrying tape case. Like pay telephones and Blockbuster, these are extinct cultural artifacts. That's true. Random music question coming out of that as I was looking at the tape of Brian Adams, Aww. Petra, Aww. Striper, and Debbie Boone. There was an Amy Grant one in there too, wasn't there? There was an Amy yeah, Grant. There and there was something related yeah. to aerobics. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyways, as I was thinking about music, Dave or Abby, here's our check-in question. What is one song, new or old, that you find yourself humming or singing to yourself at random times and in random places? So, for example, for some reason, and I confess I have done this for way too many years, when I'm specifically photocopying, I find myself singing If I Could Turn Back Time by Cher. I have no idea why. And I've literally probably done that way back to when I was at Surrey Christian School. Wow. So, Abby? Yeah, so I don't do that. Yes. <laughs> at all. Well, I can't say that it's like a specific song that recurs over okay. and over. I will say that I have like lyrics that will pop into my head when the situation lends itself. For example? For example, when I used to bathe my kids, right, 
Um, and you know the song Turn Around Bright Eyes, right? Oh, so yeah. I would always sing that to them, like when I was like asking them to turn. And we still sing it quite a while when we when we have to turn around, right? Like yeah. for example, yeah. no or oh, the line from Hamilton when he's the king is like, "Good luck." I say yeah. that one a lot. Yeah. <laughs> when it true. calls for it. So. I'm not familiar with the Bright Eyes song. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. not gonna sing it. You're not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's good. Yeah. How about you, Dave? You love music. I love music. So yeah. my wife gives me a hard time because my life is actually a musical and no one else is bursting into song and dance behind me. And <laughs> I, I wish that it was. And she'll even say that. Like, if we're driving down the road, just the two of us, and we don't have the radio on, I'm still just, like, bopping along to the soundtrack in my own head. And, like, all the time. There's always a song for, for me, like, all the time. Um, and so I wouldn't say I necessarily have a, a particular go-to song, but what happens is sometimes, like, a line of a song will randomly come out of me, and sometimes it really opportune times and so like for whatever reason all of a sudden man I feel like a woman and I'm like don't say that why did you oh like but that just happens to be the song that's going through it yeah Uh, for instance It's awkward. Awkward. Yeah. <laughs> We're beginning to see why we asked Abby to join the podcast. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Dave and Abby, I know our friends here and in many other places are talking about the word empo- empowerment. It seems to be like an important word right now and for yeah. many good reasons. So on a more serious note, and maybe a, a check-in question or just a, a leading question to get us started. Who is a person from your youth, whether K to 12 in education or church or a coach or, or just a family friend um, that empowered you? Or maybe as an option, when, when you're feeling empowered by someone, what is, what is that person doing? So maybe a person that's done that for you in the past or even now, like what does it look like when someone's empowering you? Dave, how, how about you? Yeah, so immediately as you ask that question, I'm picturing my fifth grade teacher, Todd DeYoung. Um, he, he was the first time I had a male teacher, which for boys sometimes is a big deal, right? And, and I had a great home life. I've got a great dad and uncles and people speaking in my life. But for me, having a male elementary teacher was a big deal in fifth grade. Um, and Todd DeYoung was brilliant. He got to know us as kids um, in, in a really, really wonderful way. And my empowering moment with him that I, immediately comes to mind, um, I w- you guys, I was a super nerdy kid. Let's just name that, okay? Super, super nerdy kid. Yep. Shocker. Um, I know. Everyone's, uh, I have like a three-foot-wide poster in my office that says geek, and I have that hanging on the wall. Okay, it's me. Um, but um, I would often get books from the library that were nerdy books. And I can vividly remember being a fifth grader and sitting in, you know, at the end of the day, you kind of got that, like, catching up your seat work kind of time. Kids are doing different things. If you're caught up, then I'm reading a book. Okay, so this is the mid-80s. I've got my knee socks pulled way up to my knee, right, like that kind of thing. Okay, and the book that I happened to be reading was an astronomy book that I got from the library. It was about the constellations and stuff. And I can remember Mr. DeYoung coming up to me, and he would just kind of be working the room and checking in with us. And he said, what are you reading? And I showed him the, the book. And the affirmation that I got Got from him is something I've carried with me for the rest of my life. I'm going to get teary telling the story. God. He smiled, and we had a little conversation about it, and at the end of it, he said, it's good to be smart. And that phrase has carried me through in parts of my life when I felt less than or that I felt bullied or picked on because I was nerdy or, or whatever. And I could come back to that and just like, no, this matters. It's good to be smart. And I'm not going to be apologetic for the fact yeah. that I'm good at school and that I'm smart, right? Like that—that that was a formative moment in my life, yeah. and I was empowered by wow. it. Wow! Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. 
How about you, Abby? Yeah, I don't know that I have a particular moment like that, but I think um, the same. I tried to hide a lot, right? I did not want attention drawn to myself. No. I tend to be that way. Yeah. Still, Still this is, this is very bit. out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and yet she keeps recording I with do. Us, I so. keep coming. <laughs> so, um, but... I, I think I felt empowered when every once in a while teachers or adults would, would break through that, right? And see and say something where I felt like, well, you, you see behind all of that, right? You see behind the mask. I Because I was a smart kid, too, and I didn't like anyone to know that, right? And I would. And so when teachers would see that and affirm it or... Um, I've had a couple of recommendation letters from professors or from um, teachers that they would share with me and seeing that and saying, you, you've been paying attention, right? And you know who I am and you see good in me. So the specificity of naming things yeah. for myself that I couldn't see, yeah. I think yeah. is, is huge yeah. for kids. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, Jane Whitty this morning. So when we were doing that liturgy, that uh, prayer about what love is, and you know, like the, the kid who's tapping the pencil, the kid who's what page are we on, the kid, that was, that was me. Like school was hard for me and I made it hard for me. I, I grew up youngest of five kids. My mom and dad were Dutch immigrants who grew up in World War II. And so education, it wasn't that it was devalued. It was just there was this assumption, I think, that that if you were a male, you were going in, into, the tr into the trades. And so I just didn't take it very seriously to the point where um, I just didn't enjoy it. And I made it hard for the, for the people, people around me. But there was a part of my life, so I really put on that mask. Like, I was that kid who, when they got a bad grade, ah, they made fun of it because I was so in insecure. But I would come home, and uh, my mom and dad would be working her out, and, and I have two old, older sisters who were big readers, and, and my sister Margaret had this Agatha Christie collection in, in her basement. Oh, and, yeah. and I would go down when I got home from school, and I would go into a room, I'd lock the door, and I would just start reading. But I didn't want anybody to know, um, which led to me doing, doing some writing. So in Canada, high school is grade 8 to 12, so I, I'd, be a big, I'd be a reader, writer. But at school, I put on this different persona. And, and I had this teacher, Jane Whitty, who, who um, invited us to do all kinds of creative writing exercises. And because I had to keep this uh, persona of not um, liking school and not just not liking it, being that kid in the class, I'd always kind of make fun of them, be like, this is stupid, like, why are we doing this? I was the, when are we ever going to use this kid? <laughs> but then we'd write, and I would actually sort of, like, really take it seriously. And, and then she'd hand him back, and I'd make fun of it again until finally one day Jane Whitty was sick of me. And, and so she <laughs> should have been long before. She was so gracious. And she literally, and you cannot do that. And you, but she literally like grabbed me by the collar and says, get out in the, get out in the hallway, Matt Beamers. And I was scared because she never got mad. And so I thought, now I've done it. Like, I've, I've, the only teacher I kind of like, I've upset. And she said, and she literally said, and this is almost word for you, she just went, come on to you, Matt Beamers. You're a good writer, and you better be an English teacher someday. And so the answer, like, why did I become an English teacher, honestly? Because Jane Whitty said, you better be an English teacher. Yes. And that is literally the, the reason. It made no sense. Like, it made no sense for me to become an English teacher beyond the fact that I loved reading and I loved writing. 
and Jane Whitty really scared me into, into being a teacher. So, anyways, it's a good story. So, so, just thinking, even thinking about the the Matt Beamers that we all have have in our classes, or, or the students who who really put high expectations on themselves and, mm -hmm. and don't reach them. My my one question, Dave and Abby, then is, how does a teacher help a student persevere through fa through failure? Because I know, I know for me, like it was part of it for me was there was a shame component to it. Like I know oh, yeah. I can't be like these other people, yeah, yeah. so I op I opted into it a different way because it felt like no matter how hard I work, I could never. And so, so my my way of dealing with failure was to never try to succeed. Um, but just how about you? Like if you think about students who fail, high achieving, or students who it's hard for. Um, any thoughts on that? My brain goes in a couple of directions with that right away. So I think back to you, you all probably teachers in the room, you, you probably have a student who was a difficult child for you at some point. Like to the point, like I will never have a child named Seth. Sorry, Seth. Um, like, because I, I had I had a student in my first couple of years of teaching who tried. Um, but I have one student in mind who. Boy, it, it seems like if, if there was a kid who came into my class with the deck, stack, deck stacked against him, um, it, it was this particular child that I'm, that I'm thinking of, um, alphabet soup of diagnoses after his name. He had ADHD and OCD and oppositional defiant disorder. Like, pick your flavor, it was him, right? Like that. And I had the privilege, and I can say that honestly now, the privilege of teaching him for three years. Um, he, he came into my math class as a sixth grader. I taught him a sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. Um, this was the kind of child who wound up sitting. He, he knew we, like, we would change seats, and he knew that his seat would be the same. Right? He had to be sitting right front and center, right up close by me all the time. And it became like a joke, but in a really healthy joke um, over time. Um, because at the beginning of sixth grade, I was just pulling out my, my hair with this one. He, he drove me crazy. And I realized at some point along the way, it was probably towards the end of sixth grade, um, that how much I actually really loved this kid. And, and like he had so many gifts to bring, and it was just like the whole deck was stacked against him. Like the way we do school, it was not for this particular child, right? And so how then can I start making small wins, like small things that I could build in to that, that would be wins? And I was a young teacher, and I made a lot of mistakes. So I'll, I'll just name that, too. I did not do this all right. Like the hindsight of looking back on this from 25 years out, I, I have a rosier picture probably than it actually was. Um, but after teaching him for three years, at the end of eighth grade, this is when we moved away from California, and I was coming to, back to, to Iowa. Um, and he was so upset that I was moving away. And like, I, I couldn't believe that, because like, this has been such a difficult kid, and, and I loved him, and we, we made a lot of progress. But he was like, I can't believe you're leaving me. Right? Like, that was kind of the, the gist of it. And, and I'm not saying, like, I know people want to say things like, but relationships matter, and you won't have any classroom management problems if you just have a good relationship. That's a bunch of baloney. You will have classroom management problems, even if you've got a great relationship with your students. Right? Like, that's not a panacea. But it doesn't hurt to try to get to know your students as unique individuals. And that's, I guess, my first piece of it. Like, in terms of how do I really care well for a student to help equip them and encourage them and help them to power through those moments. Like, in a lot of ways, he was a failure in my math class. Like, he did not do well in, in my math class. I can name that. But I think he's successful in life because he had teachers who were willing to pour into him and to see good in him and to celebrate the small wins. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. Abby, any thoughts? 
Yeah, I think a turning point for me in teaching, I used to teach high school English, and so I always taught the, the writing class that was the college prep writing class. And I think a turning point for me was when um, I figured out how to get students to see that I was on their side. And this was them and I against the task of writing well right, for college. And so um, I had a college professor, Bill Augersma, I don't know if any of you in the room know who that is, who is, who is incredibly hard. And he was my freshman college comp English professor. And I was, I was good at English. And I was going to be, at, well, eventually, I decided later to be an English teacher. But I did very poorly in his class at first. <coughs> Excuse me. I ended up doing well. Um, and he and I had a good relationship. So my, my, one of my best teaching ideas ever was I took him, he was really hard um, at the college level, and I asked him to come talk to my seniors and tell them what his expectations were for college writers. So he would come be a guest speaker in my class early in the semester, and then my students, he would leave, and my students would all look at me and be like, help us, <laughs> right? And so, so then they and I were up against this task and this idea of, of writing well. And we got so much done, and they became such good writers and so invested. And I think then they were willing to persevere because they saw a reason and they saw a goal, and they saw me as a person who could help them get there. Instead of me telling them, you have to do this, and them against me, we became partners in that learning against a bigger um, foe or, or challenge. Yeah. yeah. I did my uh, student teaching under Bill Alderson. Mm -hmm. Talk about teaching for transformation. Yeah. Oh, that He's was, such a great guy. Yeah. If he no, listens totally. to this, he, yes. He is amazing. Yes. Yeah. He is amazing. Hey, uh, this question is not a question about me, but so how do you deal with students though who have the idea that A minus is a failure? I, I don't know what that's like, but just because you do have students, like we're talking about yeah. you know the students who struggle or but but students who like I'm thinking of a student in my first few years of teaching. Um, so here I was, this uh, know-it-all um, teacher right out right out of door. Um, as opposed to being a know-it-all who was many years out of door now, but but I was uh, I was uh, um, I gave this student I was the first teacher to ever give this student an A minus. Whoa! As a high school. Uh, this is high school. Wow. This did not go over very well. You can just imagine what that conversation was like. Um, but that was hard, and, and there's so many things I wish I could do over about that because I was I was a, at that point. I don't know if anybody's of a vintage where you know you get all the grades in the grade book, you add them up, you divide the points you got by the points you had, and and, and it was like a half a percentage away from an A, and and for some reason I just thought, well, no, that's the percent that. So there's things I wish I could do over about that. But what do you do with students who are that high and and? And quite honestly, you two probably know that a little bit more. Like, as people who were good at school, um, where, where grades maybe mattered in a different way to you than, than they did to me, how do you how do you manage or empower kids who really, for an A minus, it really feels like failure? Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about school culture and and what, what I'm sure you, you all have students like this. I guess I'm begging the question. There's a whole lot of people in the room nodding right now. That's yeah. great. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, that's not great, it's terrible, right? Because I think this is actually somehow doing a disservice to kids to, that who's putting this pressure on them? Is it me right. as the teacher? I don't think it's me. 
Is it their parents? Maybe, probably. I think for some of those kids who, for whom an A minus is a failure, I think a lot of times they're putting that pressure on themselves, but they got that message somewhere, right? I don't think most kids come into that one on their own. So it's tricky, I think. I think you're asking a really important question here, but I don't know if there's a, a clean way for us to say whose fault is it that they feel that, I guess. I don't know. That's my, my initial thought on that. Um, I don't know. Abby, do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I, and I think we also have to recognize the very real pressures that kids face that aren't just put up, but there are real consequences to oh, yes. GPAs, right? Cost of college, scholarships. I think we have to recognize that and be compassionate toward kids who are living in that pressure. I think that high school students, I know that high school students feel that pressure acutely. That's a real thing. That's not a made-up thing that, yeah. that they're putting on themselves. And so I think that's part of it, being compassionate and gracious about that. And also just talking about learning apart from grades is my best, yeah. right? I, like, I like, that. like those two things are, are not always, they should be aligned. Right. I don't know that they always are. I think grades can sometimes be compliance, yeah. right? Which is a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> That's true. But, but I think I, I always talk about learning. We talk about learning. We talk about learning targets. We talk about, like, we don't talk about it in terms of grades. And I think... Mm-hmm. That's not a necessarily a way of dealing with it, but it's just a stance that I think helps normalize focusing on the learning instead of focusing on the grade that you're getting. I, I really like that idea of if we can disentangle the grade, because I, I think that's the ideal situation, right? Like I think a lot about assessment, and in an ideal situation, what's reported is the grade should be a report of the student's achievement. But a lot of times, I don't think it is that, actually. And I'm pointing the finger at myself as I say this, not at y'all, okay? Um, how often, it's a mark of compliance, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, and what's my mechanism to get you to do X, Y, and Z? Well, in the end, the grade is a club that I can wield and make you do what I want you to do because I'm going to give you a grade. Mm-hmm. That's not really about achievement. As, and, oh, like, students should do their homework. Yes, they should because they're likely to learn more if they do their homework, right? Uh, students should turn in their work. Yes, they should because then I actually have assessment evidence to, right? But I think we often end up doing some really punitive things to kids with our grading practice. And that's the part I can control in, in my own practice. I can't always control the messaging that they've heard or how they're thinking about uh, what the grade is. But if we can keep the focus on, but what are you learning, and, and de-emphasize the grade part of it. And I know that's really hard right. in, in our contemporary school culture. And, and I don't think you can necessarily do away with that. Right. You can't, right. right? And so like when I have students read something or respond to something before class, they get a, they have an admit slip, they have to turn it in, like it's weighted that if they skip it, they'll feel it in their grade, but they also know that they're going to have to talk about it right. in my class the next day. It's an expectation. I'm not going to go through it point by point. They are expected to have processed it and read it the night before, and what we're doing in class will build on it. And so that expectation of mine that they have done authentic learning on their own and they know that they're going to be authentically responsible for it the next day in class with their peers and with me, I think, helps as well. As as you're talking, I'm thinking about, I'm spending time this morning reflecting on my own learning journey as we're talking about this and and what empowered me or what wasn't empowering to me. Um, But I remember at some point in high school, Um, a teacher finally just saying to me out of frustration, um, why does this, why does your learning, talk like, why does this seem more important to me than it does to you, Matt? Oh, yeah. 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 How do you, 
it was. Um, how do you empower, what are some, when I say, hey, we need to empower students to take ownership of their learning, what are, what are some things that come to mind? If, if, yeah, just maybe tangible strategies yeah, or ideas. Yeah. So one, one thing that I've really tried to do, so some of you know my background, I was, a, I was a middle school science teacher for a long time, and I currently teach our methods of teaching science for elementary and middle school. Um, in and this is it's fascinating to watch these future, and forgive me, but a lot of the folks coming into elementary education, they're not there because they want to teach science, right? Uh, they want to teach reading, maybe math, right? They want to uh, teach like, kids, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and, but like, I'm trying to win them over in this, and this is actually something we talked about just the other day um, in, in class to, to try to say, like, how do you actually get your students actively involved in their own education so that education isn't being done to them, mm -hmm. but it's something, right? And so one of the things that we talked about as a strategy mm -hmm. is to normalize questions. And you would think, as teachers, like, we would be all about questions, but I'm going to challenge you all here. I think a lot of us, and again, I point the finger at myself, but I've talked with other teachers about this. For a lot of us, we're actually kind of scared when the students ask us questions. We're actually kind of scared when students ask us questions because what if I don't know the answer? Right? And, and especially in a content area that you maybe don't feel super confident about, like the elementary teachers teaching science, they're like, oh, I'm worried I'm going to have this second grader who knows everything about every dinosaur ever. Because why do second graders love dinosaurs so much? But it's a thing, right? And my answer to them is, okay, so then you need a script, right? Like, what's a script that you can have when a student asks you a question and you're like, I'm not sure? Because I want students to ask questions. That's a big part of doing science. We should normalize that. Like, questions are good. Questions are okay, right? Like, if people aren't asking questions, then they start to worry because then they're just accepting everything I say to them. They're just nodding along and smiling, right? No, okay. Um, but so you need a script then. Like, what are you going to say when the students ask you a question? So my prompt to them that I said, like, a great response when no matter what the question is, whether you know the answer or not, is to start by saying, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Because everyone wants to be the most interesting person in the, world, in the room, right? And, okay, so you're affirming them for asking the question, well, that's interesting. And then right away turn it back to the student and say, how could we find out? And even if you know the answer to that question, to invite them into the act of learning, and that's what the empowering piece that I think you're getting at there, Matt, to say, okay, I know things that my students don't know. They also know things I don't know. Mm -hmm. And like, let's acknowledge that, that students come into our classroom knowing things, and students that you teach know things that you don't know, and that's okay. And so then to invite them in, that I can learn things from them and they can learn things from me. Now, you can't play that card every single day because in the end, you do have to know things as a teacher. Like, content knowledge actually is, is important, after all. I mean, it is. Right? Okay. But it gives them a script then, when you're in that moment, to say, like, I don't know how to handle this one. Um, it gives them a sense that they can empower their students to be part of the learning process. Mm -hmm. So I was talking, some of you know Daryl DeBoer. A uh, good friend of mine from British Columbia, he often, he gifted me with the language of culture of try, playing in the sandbox. And so I was talking to my philosophy education students about this a couple years ago, and about this, the idea of like being risk takers and creating a culture of, that making mistakes is okay, um, and waxing eloquent about that as someone who's not in K-12, those are easy things to talk about when you're right, not right. in the classroom every day. And I had, a, I had a student, and in good natured and in good faith, like a good banter, good banter, um, say to me, that sounds great. When's the last time a teacher gave you credit for being wrong? Hmm. I was like, 
well, never, and I have a lot of experience with being wrong and not getting credit for that, but, but it was, so I'm trying to, I'm thinking about the word empowerment, risk-taking, culture of try, freedom to make mistakes, and yet, the right answer in some places, like, we, we gotta get there at, at yeah. some level. Yeah. So how do, we, how do we help students feel confident enough to trust their, their learning, their answers, the being wrong, and yet also kind of the paradox of striving for ex excellence. Yeah. So you're asking the easy question. Here, right? So <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to the book you're going to write on this. So. Yeah. I hope you're talking to Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I got a book on it. No, yeah. Okay. yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, I think normalizing the behavior you want to see in your students and yourself is important too. And so just saying, like I will say to my students, I haven't done this before, we're going to try a new activity, right? Or um, like admitting or talking about when I like made a mistake, like telling stories about that or understandings that I'd come to because of a wrong conclusion. Um, so normalizing that in my own practice I think is important and also among the students and so in class conversation is an easy way to like they don't nobody loses any credit if they give an answer that's a little off topic and we can say that's interesting how can we get there so through class conversation I think is a low stakes yeah. way to do that and to normalize it and also drafts so I do a ton of draft work in my, so my students are writing lesson plan drafts, they're doing peer edits, they're doing um, drafts of, we have, I'm teaching the 203 class where it's the planning, instruction, and assessment class where they write a unit plan for the very first time. Yeah. Which, well, if you, you don't remember this, but that's a huge deal to do for the first time and to wrap your brain around how to do that for college students, for 20 year olds. It's a, it's a huge process. And so we do draft upon draft upon draft. And I've been telling them over and over, this should change. This will change by the time after you look at resources, your worldview statement will change. And after you um, get into lesson planning, you might tweak an objective that you had for the unit. Because this, and so just talking about how normal that is, and, and I'm going to look at it over and over and over and not set up the expectation that the thing is going to be perfect the first time. So we, we say all the time, first draft, worst draft in yeah. our department, and I say it to my students and talk about that a lot. That's great. Yeah. Dave, any thoughts on, thoughts on that? Yeah. So one of the things that I've been thinking about, now again, I teach in the STEM disciplines, right? And so we tend to prioritize evidence. Like if you're making a claim about an answer to a question, you should provide evidence. But I think that cuts across all disciplines, right? Like if you're teaching English, if you're teaching literature, and you're asking students questions about the text, they should be able to provide evidence for that too. Um, but I love the idea of this, right? Like a, a protocol that I've used is questions, claims, and evidence, right? That I'm asking a question or the students are asking a question, they're going to make a claim to what they think the answer is, and then they're going to provide evidence to support that. And one of the things that I've found over years of doing this with middle schoolers and with college students too, questions, claims, and evidence, um, to get them to start providing evidence to back up their claim, how often they realize, oh, that doesn't make sense. Oh. Oh, it's actually like this, because as they're talking it through for themselves with a partner in a small group, in their writing, sometimes as a whole class, as they're using that protocol, and we've just normalized that, like, it's okay to change your mind. Educated people should change their minds. As you become educated, you should change your mind. Like, if you never change your mind, you're probably not educated, you're probably indoctrinated. 
right? Um, and just to be, be aware of, of that, right? Um, and so to use some of that kind of language with students too, to help them to see like, hey, as you're learning things, you're going to think differently, and it's okay that you used to think this, and now you think this. That's okay. My favorite ever research paper I graded when I taught K-12 was I had a student as a sophomore and they write a research paper and then they write one as a senior. Yeah. And he wrote on the same topic and changed his mind. Oh, so he wrote a, a topic on a topic as a sophomore and then he wrote on it from a different perspective as a senior. And then he talked about how his mind had changed and was able to reflect on his sophomore self and how his thinking was too simplistic. And wow. like that was, I, I talk about that in my classes a lot as That's like great. a great example of normalizing and encouraging that kind of thoughtful mm -hmm. mind changing. Mm -hmm. When I was a high school English teacher, we would often make fun of the math and science teachers for taking themselves too seriously. <laughs> I'm sure that doesn't happen here. And the math and science teachers would make fun of the English teachers because they would say, it must be nice to teach a class where there is no right answer and you can just talk about it forever. So that caused some tension, um, but I remember having a follow-up conversation with one of those teachers who was a was a friend, and basically and basically said as a math teacher of feeling insecure about not being creative enough in in the classroom. So I don't see myself as creative, and then others I've talked to who were like viewed being if you're viewed as being creative, you're not viewed as being rigorous. And so my question is, like, do creativity and rigor, do they have to be mutually exclusive? Because I feel like question. at times yeah, um, that, that there can be that perception of, well, yeah, you have all the fun, but it's not rigorous enough. And, um, and somehow, somehow if you're having less fun, you're more rigorous. So just, just thoughts on that. Like, work really hard. Do you yeah, do, creativ do creativity yeah. and rigor have, have to be mutually exclusive? No. Yeah. All right, <laughs> next question. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, uh, I agree. I'd say no yeah. to, to the answer to that question. But I think that there's sometimes this sense when we talk about rigor. Well, forgive me. When do we talk about rigor? When do you use the word rigor? Either in education or when you're talking about dead things. Oh boy. Right, rigor mortis. Yeah, right? then, I have not when, made that connection before. The, the term rigor, like it's rigor mortis, or it's, oh, we're going to be rigorous in our approach to instruction or something. This is so inspiring. <laughs> I just, here we are. Like, literally, this. like flat and stiff? Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. And, and so this is my wonder, right? Like sometimes I think we're prioritizing the wrong thing. What's the learning target? We joke about that a lot. Yeah, right. Like, what's yeah. the learning target? We should actually keep that in mind. Hmm. And I'm not saying fun is the learning outcome I'm aiming for, but death is for sure not the learning <laughs> target I'm aiming for, right? And, and if, if our definition for rigor is students are going to die as a result of this class, or they're going to feel like they're dying, or something, that ain't it. That ain't it, Chief. Right? Like that's not that's not what we're hmm. what we're aiming for. And so I, get, I have a reputation in our department for being a little bit playful, um, just a wee bit, a little bit. Okay. Um, and, and I would argue that my classes are still appropriately demanding for students, mm -hmm. but that's more the way I would like us to think about it. Instead of talking about being really rigorous, to think about it being what's appropriately demanding, appropriately challenging 
for the grade level of the students that we have in the context that, that we're at, right? Rigor or demanding in kindergarten looks different than rigor or demanding in a high school chemistry class, right? Yes, correct, okay? But I think teachers can be equally playful in either of those mm -hmm. settings. We can be equally okay. creative. And for some teachers, they say, well, I'm just not that creative. Stop doing that. And I am going to point my finger at you and wave it at you like I'm doing right now. Stop doing that if you say you're not creative. You are created in God's image. God is the creator. You are created to create. And so I'm not creative. That's a slap in the face to our Lord. Okay? Now, some of us are more resourceful than others. Right? But you are creative. You create things all the time, teacher. You create things all the time. So lean into that. Like, it's okay to create things. And some of us are going to say, I'm going to create this brand new thing out of my own imagination. Great. Some of us are going to be, I'm going to be resourceful, and I'm going to cobble together things that I find from other sources and put it into my practice. Great. That's also creative. You're creating really engaging learning experiences for your students by doing that. And it doesn't have to be a lack of rigor in the process. Sorry, I'm pontificating. No, that's good. <laughs> When I talk to um, part of my, the privilege of my work is I also teach in the graduate studies, the Masters of Ed program at Dort, so get to interact with a lot of teachers um, across the country, in Canada, beyond. And it's clear to me, I don't know if it's true here, but a common theme that often comes up is that things are different since the pandemic. Like things are different for teachers, things are different for students. Um, maybe for parents, um, so maybe a bit of a, a bit of a right turn here in terms of questions. But um, just one of the one of the people in the audience wants to know just what are some of the changes you've seen in education since the since the pandemic? And and I'm not necessarily looking for. And I mean, there are like what are some of the hard things? Um, what are some of the threats? But is there also opportunities that you've seen schools take advantage of since the pandemic? Hmm. So an immediate thing for me, um, being a big part of my academic work is in educational technology and, and things like that. I think um, pandemic teaching boosted, for good or ill, boosted a lot of teachers' tech skills uh, in, in the process uh, because we just had to jump in the deep end of the pool and keep treading. Now, I had the benefit or maybe the detriment that my academic field is online teaching and learning. Like if I know something about something, my doctoral work is in online teaching and learning. And so I could see what was about to happen when we were moving into like the time of the lockdowns and going online. And I was like, this is going to be terrible, right? Like just, <laughs> I, I could see it. Um, and it was not as terrible as I thought. But for a lot of teachers, I think that was the thing that was defining for them, saying, I never want to do that again. And I, I don't know if that was the case for y'all. Um, I, I don't want to assume that it was. But for a lot of the teachers that I've talked to, um, so I teach in the EdTech program, in our Master of Ed uh, program. And, and we, boy, yeah, the, the kinds of conversations that I've had with teachers about technology and education are wildly different um, in, a, in a world where COVID is a thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you thoughts? I, I don't know that I'm like super qualified since I don't teach, teach in K-12 yeah. to to comment yeah. on this. I see it from a parent perspective. Um, I've appreciated some of those integrations yeah. um, of tech in my own kids. Like the way that their teachers were resourceful was a gift, right, yeah. to, to our students. Um, but in our own students as well, I see how profoundly our students that I teach right now, college students, they were in high school. 
when um, the pandemic hit, and I see how profoundly that has shaped and affected them. Yeah. And so I guess I'm thinking of it not only from an institutional perspective, but also on the future teachers that will serve yeah. in schools, right? I think, I think their education was profoundly affected for yeah. good or ill by the pandemic, and I think they're still working that out yeah. in a lot of ways, and it comes up quite a bit um, in our classes. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of, the, one of the things I've learned from you is the importance of giving good feedback, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, maybe the link between f giving good feedback and empowering student learning. Like, is, mm -hmm. is spending the time giving feedback w worth it? <laughs> Because I know you do really well at it. Oh, I, don't, I don't know that I do. She but, does. You guys, okay. she's in really my good. mind, you're the, you do know. But I mean, we've talked about yeah. it before. So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about it. Or what is good yeah. feedback? So I'm, gonna, I'm in, a, in one of my sessions today, we're going to talk about writing across okay. the curriculum and how hard it is to give good writing feedback. And so there are some, because that's my background, right? So there are some things to do. Um, but one of the things I'm gonna mention in that session is talking about giving whole class feedback, right? So time is precious yeah. to teachers. And so seeing trends and giving students examples and exemplars and whole class feedback, yeah. um, because something I talk about with my students in literacy classes is how many of you have ever gotten a page back full of corrections or marks and then like not looked at it? and not done anything with it and everybody's hand goes up. And that is so depressing to the person who spent all of that time, right? Yeah. Making those suggestions. Yeah. And so realizing that students don't necessarily like take that individual feedback in the ways that we want them to sometimes, yeah. the technical pieces, but so making it authentic, making it like whole class, here's some exemplars, here's how we can improve. Yeah. I do a ton of peer feedbacking yeah. Yeah. Um, among themselves. I do. Just, I do a lot of formative feedback, yeah. Yeah. I would say. And yeah. I think that also empowers students to see their own mistakes yeah. and to make their own things better. Yeah. And that's the only way they're gonna, like if I am telling them everything that's wrong but they never look at it, that's, yeah. they're not gonna learn anything, yeah. right? So giving them the tools to look at their own work and yeah. see where it goes wrong and make yeah. it make it better I think yeah. is is I think the best way to use our feedback time yeah. so earlier we talked about the word rigorous and <laughs> sorry no. No, I'm never gonna like see good. that the same way I'm never gonna use that word around Dave again but but again quite often again I'll just say for myself I've associated that word with giving lots of homework mm. right like he, like if you give lots of homework you're a rigorous teacher so again Yes, of course you're going to have homework on the weekend. Of course you're going to have homework at the end of every class. Kids loved me, by the way. I know, I'm, just they did. I'm just kidding, being facetious. But Dave, you have, you've done a lot of thinking about homework. It's true. And now I'm just wondering about, just like we talked about the link between good feedback and learning, how about this idea of like good homework versus, to use your language, crappy homework, right. and empowering learning versus disempowering yeah. learning. Can you, I don't know, can you just talk yeah. about that? So the crappy homework comment, by the way, like I used to keep a blog, and I think some of you maybe have even read it, and like my most read post ever, it had like 14,000 reads, was called No More Crappy Homework. And then it kind of got me started on this whole thing. I did some research on like what what is good homework, because I realized how much of the homework that I assigned when I was teaching in middle school was awful. And it didn't actually 
actually help students learn anything. And the more I did the research, the, the summary of the research that I can give you, that all the reading that I've done on, on homework, some homework has some benefit for some students in some situations. Great, right? Like, okay. um, and so I think one of the things that I would encourage teachers to do is to say, and this is rooted in the research I've done, um, to say, if you're going to give students homework, you should be able to clearly say to them, at any grade level, in any content area, you should be able to clearly say to them, I am giving you this homework because, and then you should be able to name how it's going to help them learn. And if you can't do that, don't give that homework. Right? So coloring is probably not good homework, because what's the learning target? Right? Um, word finds. Probably crappy homework any way you slice it, because what's the learning target? Only homework right. I was good at as a yeah. kid, but that's OK. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Matthew. <laughs> right? But that's what I'm getting at. And so sometimes teachers will ask me, then like, OK, but how about reading? Like, can I still assign reading? Well, yeah, because you could make a pretty clear argument, hey, you're going to go read for 20 minutes, and here's how that's going to benefit your learning. Right? Um, if you're going to have them do a math problem set, there's probably going to be a benefit for them doing that math problem set. But I would challenge you on that one. Uh, the research also suggests the longer students spend on homework, the steeper the drop-off in benefit is. So if you can have really Ooh. tightly focused homework, yeah. like don't give them 30 problems. Give them six problems. And if they can do the six, they don't need to do the other 24, right? Like, and, and I know people say practice makes perfect. Practice does not make perfect. Because if you're practicing the wrong thing, you're only reinforcing the wrong thing, right? Practice makes permanent is a better way of, of saying that, right? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm a fan of practice. Practice is a good thing. But to right-size the work, to give them the right work that's actually going to benefit their learning, I guess. That would one be of, my, one my of the best um, like talks I've heard on homework was from David I. Smith at a um, deeper learning conference a couple of years ago. And he talked about the formative power of homework on homes which I thought was incredibly interesting. So he said that the, the force in his home that was most detrimental to his family's life was the homework that his daughter got from her Christian high school because she would spend so many hours up in her room alone on homework, come down, be in a terrible mood for dinner, go back. Um, and so he challenged us to think about what is the... what what is your homework forming and how is it formative for your students he gave examples of he challenged her his daughters one of his daughter's teachers how can you get um homework that maybe encourages family interaction so then his daughter had to come do an interview with him right and so they sat together and talked about things that were important um, my kids have had to do that with um music with their grandparents around like what music did you listen to and how was that for and so I got to watch those conversations take place right so homework that gets students talking to people and gets them in their communities my son right now is doing a bless to bless project so they raised money with a project and now we have to figure out how to bless other people he has to write about it he has to give pictures um, for that he's a second grader um, and so thinking about how homework forms not only yeah. the learning, but also the home life and the practices of your students outside of school, I think, is really important. As we're talking about that, I'm reflecting on my, uh, before I was at Dort, I was a, a principal for 10 years and a vice principal for seven years. And I'm actually beginning, I'm, I'm making a connection to what you're saying, 
between the expectations that I put on our staff outside of the school day and, and the formative nature of that mm -hmm. and what that might have done to their families. Yeah. And it does make me think that we need to rethink, and I'm not saying this in a pressure way, Jeremy, I think as schools in general, if the homework we're giving students is having a detrimental impact on, on our families, I think we do need to think then, what about all those other things teachers are doing and expected to do, hmm. and what that, what is the formative nature of that on their, not just families, we don't all have kids, but on their communities, yeah. on wholeness, on wellness, and I think we need to we need to reimagine that, right? Yeah. Like, there's 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 not, and I'm not saying this is only true of teaching. I'm not saying this is a woe is me, but but there's not many jobs, and I'm sure there's others, where you spend a couple hours getting ready in the morning before you do the work, you do the work all day, and then you go home and you do all the work that's a result of the work you did all that day, and you gotta get ready for the next day. And by the way, you need to maintain all these other things in, in your life. And, so and you coach a sport, and sponsor a club, yeah. and go on a field trip. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure that's not the case for you all. No, yeah. no, but I do think, like I said, I, it's not, I think that's just true. I'm just, I'm yeah. thinking about yeah. that now, about, about if that's true for our students, how do we, how do right. we rethink expectations questions. on teachers? I don't have an answer. It's, if I'm honest, I've never thought about it before, and I, and I wish I, I would have. A little bit of a different question as we're wrapping up here, Dave and Abby. What brought you into teaching? What keeps yeah. you in teaching? Oh, that's such a good question. The what brought me to teaching is the, the funnier story, I, th I think, maybe. So I was bound and determined to not become a teacher. And so God hears our plans and laughs, right? But, but I have a lot of teachers in my family. My mom was a teacher. I've got uncles and aunts who are teachers or, or administrators. So I knew I'd seen enough behind the curtain. Like I was like, all right, that is not for me. I'm not going to do it. Um, when I was an undergrad student at Dort in the mid-90s, I started in computer science. And I loved the programming, but the, I did not love the calculus um, that, was, that was required. <laughs> Why and not? I mean, I, I joked before. I passed uh, Calc 1 by the grace of God in Arnie Veldkamp, uh, who was my professor for it. Like, we barely. Barely made it. So it was pretty clear to me. I had like six more semesters of upper level math classes I was going to take. And I was like, I don't think this is going to work out for me. Um, and so I went to the Career Development Center at Dort and um, you know talked to people there. I took a bunch of assessments. And of course, the result says, you should be an elementary teacher. I'm like, I am not going to be an elementary teacher. Uh, but they talked me into taking intro to ed. And I never looked back. Like, it absolutely, like, won me over. And I just think it's so funny how God has a sense of humor because looking back, like, you maybe had this experience too. Like, looking back from, from today's vantage point, I can see, like, all these places where God's hand was guiding and directing my, my path. And I couldn't see it at, at the time. Um, and it came full circle for me because I ended up as a technology director and now my doctorate's in educational technology and, like, all of these pieces. Like, uh, of course it came together that way. Of course it did because you can see it, right? So that's how I ended up coming into education. What keeps me here, in all seriousness, it's the people. Um, it's it's not the work. I love the work too, but the people are the are the best part of it. I love my colleagues in our department. I love the students I get to meet up with. I love coming doing things like this yeah. to talk with practicing K twelve teachers. Um, this fills me up in ways that I cannot describe to you. Yeah, yeah, I love the people. How about you, Abby? Yeah, I fell in love with teaching um, teaching swimming lessons at the Rock Valley Pool. That's how I fell in love with teaching. So watching kids learn one skill and then learn another skill and then learn another skill and then they could do the breaststroke and it was like this magical thing yeah. um and so i 
I had a great mentor who kind of like walked me. I think I learned how to teach in the three foot at the hmm. at the pool, right? Yeah. And so um, that's kind of how I fell in love with it. I didn't see myself as a career path necessarily until I was about a sophomore yeah. um, at Dort. I was a psych major actually for a while there. Um, what what keeps me here is the people I would say, but also just the the. Cr- the creativity and the science behind teaching. I love pedagogy, I love teaching methods, and I love the creative piece of it too. Um, and so it's just, it's a great fit for me. How about you, Ben? Yeah, well, Jane Witte. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Jane Witte. Yeah, but I would say, yeah, there's an, ele- there's an element of it for sure, the people. So I've taught everything from kindergarten, PE, to now um, master's event. And by the way, kindergarten PE in 30 years is honestly the hardest class I've ever taught. So kindergarten, grade one, grade two teachers, God bless you, I mean that. Like, it, like I came in as a 22-year-old Manhattan Christian school in Montana, and on the first day of my first um, year of teaching, I told these five-year-olds, hey, we're going to run a lot. I did not finish the word, the sentence. All they heard was run. And I can remember bringing, I think it was someone named Brandon Flickema or something. Brandon, if it was you, I'm sorry. Boom. I had to bring him to the principal's office, Mr. Dembeston's office, in my first five minutes of teaching because he ran into someone else because he had his head down. And, and so I thought that was actually be the end of my teaching career before it even got going, but but I think I just, I love it all. I loved middle school. Uh, they were so weird, and I mean that, I know, I mean that respectfully, like it just, they were so fun, like I love, I would say middle school is still one of my favorite things to teach. I love the exchange of ideas with high school students. I love, and learning so much from them, learning so much from undergrad, I love pedagogy. Mm -hmm. I think I've learned, I use, um, when I started teaching, it was all about me up in front of the room, listen to all my knowledge, I'm gonna pour it into you. Mm -hmm. And I think I've moved, I think, um, and I still have a ways to go, more the, um, say, like this, uh, you know, the guide on the side, Mm -hmm. and just thinking what are the different protocols. And I think, for me, I was a principal at one of the first TFT schools, and I think that's the gift TFT has given given me yeah, is yeah. around is around protocols and being friends like with like I said Peter Welly, Daryl DeBoer, I just learn new things from them all the time oh, yeah. and protocols yeah. work. Like it's mm-hmm. it's amazing. And and it was interesting because they don't always seem that rigorous and yet there's such deep learning learning that, that happens. So yeah, exactly. friends we know that your time is valuable and I want to thank you for joining us today for another hallway conversation. Whether it's this day, this week, this month, the rest of this year, we hope the Lord gives you what you stand in need of. And we'd like to send you from here with this blessing. So to our friends in the room and our listeners at home, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you have a good week. This podcast was literally dreamed up during one of our actual Hallway Conversations. Our music is by Ethan Mulder. Hallway Conversations is created and produced by Matt Beamers, Abby DeGroat, and Dave Mulder. Hey, we have a favor to ask of you. Would you be willing to rate this podcast or write a review in your podcast app? Or if you found this conversation interesting or helpful, would you consider sharing it on your social media? Those things really do help podcasters out, and we would be so, so grateful. Thanks for listening, friends. Something like that.